Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernio. We're delighted to have you on board. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and we come to you every week on Caregiver SOS On Air. We're going to talk in just a couple of moments uh, with a woman who runs a very interesting program, Claire Webster, president and founder of Caregiver Crosswalk, dealing especially with people who are caring for folks with Alzheimer's. But before we jump to her, uh, the question of the day, and it's one every parent asks when they pack lunch for their kids heading off to school, is lunch meat bad for us, Carol? Well, if you were driving in the car in October of last year, you probably heard the World Health Organization report that came out with very big, bold stories all over the place about lunch meat and, and, and processed meats like barbecue. Um, and that, sulfates. Yeah, with the sulfates. And, you know, that it's that they're horrible for you, increase your risk of colorectal cancer by 18 to 36 percent, depending on how often mm. you eat these meats. So... Is lunch meat bad for you? Well, yes, but um, on the good news, before you swear off all of it, it it increases your risk by 18%. Um, it doesn't mean that you're, you're 18% more, I'm sorry, your chance of getting colorectal cancer to 18%. It means it runs your risk up by 18%. So that could go from 4.5 to 5.3, you know, just a percentage point over the course of your lifetime. Which is negligible. So that's, you know, it, smoking is way, way, way worse than eating right. liverwurst. Um, so, and, and you know, and the, all lunch meats are not created equal. All right, so the bad guys are the salami and the pastrami's and the bolognese, the heavy, heavy processed ones that have a lot of nitrites and nitrates because think about it. They're curing this meat, and they want it to be shelf-stable and taste good for a very long time. So lots of salt, lots of preservatives, and very high saturated fat, like half of the calories are from fat. Like Twinkies that'll last like, for a yeah, thousand years. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, they don't die. And so... You know, these are not good. You know, they can all that all the additives in the salt, they can make your blood pressure grow up. They can stress your heart, your kidneys and and other parts. But if you go with whole meats that are sliced. So think about your favorite deli and think about that chicken that they carve the chicken, they carve the turkey. That's not highly processed meat so that you can still enjoy a deli sandwich. And it doesn't have to be the really highly processed meats that you're talking about. So you just need to pick your deli meat wisely or only eat your bologna every once in a while. I mean, who doesn't like a good bologna sandwich at any age? How about Um, Spam? Or Spam, you know. Crack that can. Yeah, I was going to say, I can remember that was a Sunday staple at my house growing up. It was fried Spam. Um, and wow. if you go to Hawaii, it's a it's a staple in any cookbook. You got to have spam, which is really funny. My so dad's household, it was something called the Yiddish term is Grebens, fried chicken fat. Ah, there you which go. Which was a true delicacy. Which, yeah, you know, and maybe some of our tastes have changed, but every once in a while, those old traditions. So have some good, you know, roast beef, 
chicken, turkey, whole meat that's sliced on a sandwich, and the highly, highly processed stuff kind of stay away from Now, you have a secret love, and that's robots. You are nuts about robots. Oh, I'm fascinated by this idea of robots. And I love this particular story came to my attention because there was a little counter next to it where you got to vote. Would you use a robot to help with caregiving duties? And it was ticking, you know, how many people had voted yes when as I was reading the story. And so at the time, those of us who would like to use robots at some point were getting beat by the people who were not comfortable with robots. So the story is about people's perceptions of robots. And what they did is they actually tested some robot technology out on some people that had mild cognitive impairment and talking to them and and their comfort level. And on the downside is that a lot of the things that robots currently do are not much more interesting than things that other reminders can do like telling you to take your medicine you don't need a robot for that you know a pill dispenser will ding heck you can set your phone to have an alarm on it you don't need a robot for it for doing the activities of daily living you can't really transfer you pick you up or do anything interesting so i think that's the problem i think we don't have robots who do are very fun they're just kind of doing boring things and that's why people aren't quite ready for it yet but it's also that fear of human touch You know, and so maybe I'm not going to feel the warm fuzziness that I get from a real person, but I will remind you about the baby seal from Japan that they used. If you pet it, it would snuggle up with you. It would make purry sounds. Its fur would, you know, its skin would respond to touch. I think a lot of us haven't seen some of the sophisticated technology that can be brought to bear, and obviously we don't want to replace humans, but... We need to make them friendlier, customer service oriented. we got to be friendly and and have more interesting things to do. But right now, we're not ready for robots. I can tell you that. So stay tuned. I'm sure you'll hear more about robots right here. So you have some updates. The Senior Olympics were just in town, sponsored by the Jewish Community Center in San Antonio. Uh, You got an update on 80-year-old athletes. Well, here we go again with those 80-year-old athletes who I'm starting to not like them very much, (laughs) (laughs) all their abilities, uh, or I'm just jealous. This is on the New York Times and Gretchen Reynolds. Um, And they were looking at, you know, healthy muscles in retirement. And and so, you know, we've known that if you, you know, exercise is good for you and it's never too late. But there were, there was a group, they invited a a whole group of world-class octogenarian athletes to participate in a study. And they looked at how well their muscles worked and the connectivity. So all of your muscles, you know, you, we walk and we pick things up and we don't even think about it, but our muscles are connected in our spinal cord somewhere to a nerve impulse that tells it this is what you should be doing. Um, and as we age, we lose those connections And so we might have that electrical impulse that tells us, okay, now go pick it up, may stutter or sputter or delay. And so we don't have as fast of reaction time. Our muscles don't work immediately the way that we want them to do. But what they found is that these octogenarian athletes still have those connections in place. They regrow those connections as they die off, and they don't have the the loss. They don't have that sputter. And so what they don't know is... Is it, do you have to be a world-class athlete? Do you have to maintain at that level Is it to make those egg? connections? Or, um, but you know, they said on the hopeful side is a lot of these people actually didn't start becoming world-class athletes until they were in their 50s. Wow. And so a lot of people listening that are caregivers on the show, hey, that's our age, you know, so maybe it's not too late 
to get into the exercise groove. Uh, and, you know, who knows? You could be an 80-year-old whose muscles work like a 40-year-old. Last week we talked to occupational therapists. Maybe the next time we have them on we can talk about uh, can you take an 80-year-old and reconnect all those synapses? Well, you know, it, it gets down to the cellular level. So all of that exercise, it's not something that just happens on the outside. It actually gets down to the cellular level, which I think is fascinating. It's through all of you. Not too many years ago, there was a big push to get folks to wear pedometers that tracked how many steps you take a day. And the magic number was said to be five thousand steps a day so the question comes if you get that many steps and that number has been raised since but if you're at five thousand or a little less are you really just sedentary well this was a question again Gretchen Reynolds in the New York Times and somebody said you know if I don't get my five thousand steps in I'm am I sedentary and the response was okay so sedentary is the opposite of activity and if you're getting five thousand steps or steps at all you're not sedentary and so the issue isn't the 5,000 steps. It's how often during the day do you get up and move? So if you cram in all of this exercise, as we've been talking about, maybe into a 2-minute or a 10-minute or a 30-minute period, and you don't do anything else the rest of the day except sit on your backside, you actually are fairly sedentary. You're more sedentary than you are active. And so now, as if it's not complicated enough... What we're talking about is, and I know that I have, I have a friend who has an Apple Watch, and it buzzes her every so often to tell her to get up out of her chair, move around a bit. And so in addition to, you know, the little Fitbit or whatever you have on your wrist, mm-hmm. your Apple Watch, that's telling you to move. I have freckles. Yeah, I, yeah, I do too. You're, <laughs> I'm pointing at, he's looking at me right. pointing at a wristwatch that <laughs> yeah. does absolutely nothing but tell no time. No Fitbit. No Fitbit. Um but so it's the getting up and down don't sit all day so that's sedentary that's what you want to avoid and the 5,000 steps the 10,000 steps the question is are you doing more than you used to do are you pushing yourself to get more fit and get more exercise and get up more often this applies to the caregiver and to the care recipient you know none of us were created you know, to just sit still. In fact, I've often heard you say that it helps the care recipient and the caregiver if they get out together. If you're taking care of somebody, you know, off the couch, from couch potato to walking is the biggest bang for the buck you can possibly get. Now, last week, we didn't get to a topic that I wanted to come back to uh, because you are a flamenco dancer. A Uh, a very mediocre one, may I add. But you do it. And you're out there doing it. And, And the question would be, is it good for your brain? If you boogie, is it great for your brain? Well, I'm happy to report um, that this is, again, a study that um, came out of Aging and Wellness recently in April. And it does say there's been some studies that show that dancing, because you've got to memorize the steps, you've got to move your muscles, you've got to execute, um, that actually dancing is one of the better things you can do for your brain health and for your physical health, that um, people who were put into a group and they danced for once a week, I think it was an hour a week for for six months, um, they had the dance classes. They showed significant cognitive improvement um, in attention, concentration, intelligence, nonverbal learning, and memory. So six months of dancing, and you're like rewiring your brain, looking good, and having a good time. So for the couch potato who memorizes TV channels and is able to exercise their thumb flicking from channel to channel, I wonder if there's a benefit there. 
Well, I don't think you're using your gross motor skills. I think you've got pretty good fine motor movement with that thumb. But, you know, nothing, pick a form of dancing. You know, I, square dancing, is it ballroom dancing? Is it Zumba? Is it line dancing? There's really a form of dancing for everyone. I love it. And I loved when we did an opening down in Corpus Christi the other day, the new senior center, Flaco Jimenez uh, was there entertaining. And these folks, some of them 80 and 90 years old, got up on that dance floor. That's right. And they don't like to exercise, but nobody ever said anything about dancing. It's exactly right. Up next, we're going to be talking about uh, a woman who spends a lot of her time helping folks deal with issues involved with patients who have Alzheimer's. Claire Webster joins us right here on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. If you're interested in getting fit and you care about seniors who are struggling, the WellMed Charitable Foundation's 2016 5K Run Walk for Seniors is just for you. Doctors agree physical fitness may be the magic bullet for so many health-related issues. So please join us for a family-friendly event Saturday, April 30th at 8 a.m. at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio. The event benefits programs supporting seniors and caregivers in our community. And meet special guest, District 124 State Rep Ina Minhar. There will be plenty of food, games, prizes, fitness activities. Hey, it's pet friendly and a whole lot more. Plus seniors age 60 and over and children 10 and younger run or walk for free. So the cost is just $25 for regular registration through April 27th and $30 on race day. If you prefer to sleep in, it's just $25 for sleepwalkers. It's all at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio. To register, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Oh, we are so pleased you are with us here. I give her SOS on air. Carol's taking a little nap here. That's kind of laid back, quiet. I know. I would, all of a sudden, I thought I was in the spa room. <laughs> there you are. That's not bad. I'm ready for the massage. Well, we are delighted to welcome Claire Webster, who is president and founder of Caregiver Crosswalk, joining us here on Caregiver SOS on air. And uh, we tracked her down in Montreal, Canada, where she heads an organization that uh, deals with patients and caregivers affiliated uh, with Alzheimer's. And Claire, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how Caregiver Crosswalk got started. Okay, well, Caregiver Crosswalk got started because of my own personal experience um, as a caregiver to my mother, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease uh, in 2006. Um, basically, I have started a second career in my life as an Alzheimer care consultant, and I help families navigate really the entire journey of Alzheimer's from uh, where to find support, where to find the, whether it's community resources or uh, home care services in the city. Uh, I help them understand what the disease is, and I think most importantly, I really try to help caregivers um, provide really moral support to caregivers and ensure that they're not on the verge of, of burning out. Um, I started this company because when my mother was diagnosed in 2006, uh, first of all, I had absolutely no understanding whatsoever about the disease itself. Uh, I had three young children. Uh, my, ch- my children were two, four, and almost nine. I had a full-time career. And the diagnosis came as a complete and utter shock to me. My mom was a very strong, athletic, independent woman. My dad had passed away the year before. And when I got the diagnosis, basically the neurologist at the time said to me, she has Alzheimer's disease. Um, Is she still driving? And I said yes. And he 
basically just picked up the phone, canceled her license, and then wished me luck. Let me ask um, you a question. How did she come to go to a neurologist to be uh, analyzed and examined? What, what brought you to bring her there, or did she do it on her own? Oh, no, she didn't do it on her own. Um, well, she started, you know, m- many people think that Alzheimer's disease is about memory, and it's really, it, it, it shows itself in different ways. My mother had absolutely no issues with memory. It was really behavioral. Um, she, my, my mom was a caregiver to my father my entire life. My father uh, was mentally fine but had a lot of physical ailments. So my mother had a very stressful life as a caregiver. And so she, after he passed away, she started showing all kinds of difficult, different signs, like she was depressed, she was very moody, she very irrational behavior, and I honestly did not know where to go, where to bring her. So I, I brought her to a GP, a general practitioner, and then he recommended that I take her to see a neurologist because otherwise I, didn't, I would not have known like, where to go, what to do. I really I wasn't informed. I had no knowledge about the disease. So when she started behaving oddly, um, I really thought she was going through some very severe depression. Um, and then, and so when the neurologist basically said to me, you know, you're, you know, he performed the full scene test and said, this is, this is Alzheimer's, I was completely, completely caught off guard. Well, I think, and that, go uh, ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, no, I was just going to say, I think you make a really important point about, you know, your mother's behavior, because one of the things that people don't realize, many people don't realize, is that personality doesn't change as we grow older. Uh, You know, you may not be as strong as you used to be, you may gain weight, you may have some physical problems, but personality um, and that decision-making function, all of that, if that changes, especially if it changes in a fairly short period of time, um, something is is wrong, and that's a, a warning flag, just like it was with your mother. Exactly. And and my mother also, I mean, she came from the generation where my father was the one who had paid the bills and took after all the finances. So when he passed away, the fact that she wasn't able to manage too much of that wasn't overly an alarm for me. But when I started going through her, 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 her papers and her things, realizing that, you know, she started giving to the same charity five times a year or... You know, I went. I went into her apartment, and every single you know those strawberry, blueberry, plastic containers she hadn't she hadn't thrown them out in about ten years. Um, the food in her fridge that had it had been expired, um, and and the way she really the way she was speaking to my children. My mother was the most wonderful grandmother, and always was there to help me out babysitting. And then all of a sudden, when she started screaming at the kids and calling them names, and just very irrational. Um, That'd be a red with, flag. Yeah, it was a red flag, and also just withdrawing socially. Um, if I would take her with me to, you know, whether it was like a, I don't know, a family gathering, my mom would go off into another room and just be sitting on the couch alone. Um, also, just in terms of how she was walking or approaching stairs, how she was getting in and out of cars. I mean, very, very odd change. And then, you know, slowly but surely, the other the other signs. I mean, missing words, and that's when I knew really that okay, something. You know, I had thought maybe she had suffered a minor stroke or something. Now, was she competent enough when you got the diagnosis? She knew what the diagnosis was, and how did she take that? She was furious. My mother's from Finland, and um, Finns are very, very proud people. And you know, there is there still is a very big stigma around the disease. She knew what the term meant. But she was furious. Um, she resented me so much. Now, I am an only child. I don't have any brothers or sisters. So all the weight of everything that was going on was on my own shoulders. She did not handle it well at all. She did not want me to tell anybody. Um, it, was, it, was, 
it was a very, very challenging time for We're me. We're talking about a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, Claire Webster's mom diagnosed. Claire then went on to found and is president of Caregiver Crosswalk. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here. Uh, and a- as that diagnosis comes down, you're totally flabbergasted. Your mother's angry. Uh, what did you do? Well, the first thing I did was say, now what? Because I really didn't know. I mean, there's really a big now what. I, I have to say that I was very um, surprised that there was no, you know, when, 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 when a patient is diagnosed with cancer or heart disease, the doctor literally writes a prescription and says, you need care. You need to go now for chemotherapy or you need something. There was absolutely no prescription for me and for my mother as to what to do next. So I, I, well, the first, my reality, the first thing was my mom was living alone, and I knew that I, she was not, she would not be able to come and live with us. I didn't know. She, w- it was very clear that she was no longer able to live alone. So I had to start researching where could she possibly, where could I move her to? And I'm not saying, you know, long-term care facilities. At this point, it was more like independent living for seniors. Um, I, I, I started to look at, you know, the, the areas. I started to. Um, I, I literally went home, went on the web, started researching what is Alzheimer's disease, what, what, what should I be expecting, and, you know, something that nobody had told me, I found it very quickly, but, you know, reality kicks in, and, and it was like, do you have the power of attorney? Do you have the mandate? And I was like, what is that? What's power of attorney mandate? And fortunately, my father had the foresight to, to, to make me power of attorney before he passed away. I think he had an inkling that something was up, but if I hadn't had that that document i don't know if you call it the same thing in the states but the power of attorney the the mandate and that was on her as well as your dad right pardon the power of attorney was for both your parents yeah um i i'm i was lucky to have that because it would help me to make a lot of decisions Mm -hmm. on behalf of my mom but i started researching the disease i i um i really became self-educated there is a local branch of the alzheimer's society here in, in montreal that i went to see but to be honest i got so caught up in this as a caregiver that, with the exception of getting support just once from, from, a, from a counselor, I was just, I was trying to manage the three kids. I had this career. I had my mom. And, and everything that could possibly go wrong, go wrong along the journey went wrong. So I, I, I guess I, it's kind of like you running on adrenaline. I just, I, just, I, I just did what I needed to do. Well, did you um, did you have to stop working to care for your mother? Y- yes, I did. I I did. Um, I think the, the probably the hardest part on this journey was, the, you know, the multiple hats that I had to wear, or that many, you know, our generation, sandwich generation, has to wear. I, you know, I, again, I had my my I had two two daughters that were um, just you know starting you know were in, in daycare, and then as as the, as the disease progressed over the over the ten years. Once they were in school, they were. I was. I had so many things went wrong with my mother's health along the way that I missed volunteering. I showed up on the wrong day for my my for my daughter bringing her birthday party, showing up the wrong day, being there. My son was growing into a teenager, and all the aspects that involved being a teenager that I had to to cope with, and you know, also my husband and I are very much involved in the community in the city and. You know, at the end of the day, I just wanted to crawl under the covers, and I was just so exhausted. But I had to wear that hat of showing up at some cocktail events, and 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 all of it with a smile and pretending that everything was okay, but it wasn't okay. As you look back, and I gather part of the motivation for uh, starting your nonprofit uh, uh, caregiver crosswalk, 
was to help folks uh, who would be in the same fix you are in learn from your experience. Exactly. So just to, just to correct you there, so I, I'm actually a consultant, so part of my business is definitely, um, like I have a four-fee to do the consulting, but the other part is because I've been involved as a volunteer for so many years, I continue to mentor families, and um, my motivation is to really, really, um, I, I think the more, if it, people need to become very educated on this disease, because then they're prepared for it, and people need to know that they must seek support, because if you don't seek support in dealing with this disease, you will burn out as a caregiver. You absolutely will burn out as a caregiver. There is no disease that takes up 24-7 the hours, the amount of time on a caregiver as Alzheimer's disease does. So how long did it take before you decided to get some help for yourself? Six years. Ooh, that's a long time. It's a long time, yeah. And I, you know, I'm all the families that I meet, they, you know, people who reached out to me and called me and talked to me, you know, I sit down with them and they go, you know what, thanks so much, but we're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. You know, when I try to t- try to convince them, and that's exactly how I was. And I think part of it is you just get, it really is, you get caught up in this, this cyclone. And, you, you know, from the morning you wake up until the time you go to bed, so many, so many things happen. And, and, yes, I had friends trying to reach out and say, Claire, can I pick up the kids from school for you? Claire, can I help? And I was just so stubborn. I kept, kept saying, no, no, it's, I'm all good. I'm all good. But I wasn't good. And um, I really, really hit a wall. And, you know, because Alzheimer's is so, it changes. The phases of disease change. And, and, and if your loved one also gets hospitalized, I mean, that's, you know, my mom was hospitalized for six months. Right, we're going to talk a little bit more. I'm going to stop you right there because we yeah. need to do a little business at our end. We're going to come right back to you, Claire Webster president and founder of Caregiver Crosswalk, and we'll tell you what she does and how she does it. We're learning about her journey uh, helping a mom diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel is here on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. This is a journey that... uh, too many Americans and folks around the world, Canada and elsewhere, are going to take helping a loved one who is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And we're learning from Claire Webster, president and founder of Caregiver Crosswalk, what that means. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, and Claire, Carol's got to jump to a meeting, so I'm going to turn this over to her for a moment before she has to leave the studio. All right. Well, uh, talk a little bit about Caregiver Crosswalk. How did you come up with a name? What does that mean? Well, I think all caregivers get to that point in the road where um, you really don't know where to go. And so the crosswalk, I feel like I'm the crosswalk where I can just take people by the hand and really help them along the right path to getting the right support that they need. Um, I've become, at least in our city, I've become a walking encyclopedia of resources, knowing where to, to tell people to turn um, whether it's, you know, uh, you know how to navigate in, in, in Montreal, you know, if you want to get into a government-funded facility that you have to navigate a certain system. Um, you know, there's all kinds of different services, but I've taken the time to personally meet the owners of the different home care providers just to, so that I can pair up, um, you know, my clients with the right home care provider. But also, I, I really consider myself a safe haven. 
a, a person that a caregiver could come and speak to and just share their innermost feelings and, and just be completely vulnerable with me because I'm vulnerable with them. I share my journey with them. So they feel safe to say, I'm angry. I can't take this anymore. I, I can't do it anymore. And by talking to somebody who's lived the same journey, I really feel that people have been able to open up to me over the past many years. So you function like a therapist on the one hand and a social worker on the other. Without Yes, without the degrees, but, but somebody who's really lived the journey. And um, I think, you know, I've, I've had many, many coffees in coffee shops with people um, over the past years, and I've kind of been become known as the Alzheimer's lady in Montreal. But I felt that by becoming, you know, like by founding my own company now, um, it'll just give me better, bigger reach, especially via social media, and, 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 and bigger reach to help many more people, no matter what city they're in. So have you found any trends yet in your work? I mean, what is it people come to you most often for? Is it to, to listen? Is it to learn what questions to ask? It's really to have um, someone that they could, you know, just really bear their soul or, or, or because they haven't been educated about the disease and, you know, for instance, how come my loved one doesn't want to shower anymore or how come they just don't listen or they really, I find once the people get the diagnosis, the doctors, I don't know how it is in the States, but I find here they're not educating people on really what happens, what happens to that person when they get, when they get to become diagnosed. So Every phase along the journey and when, when, when the disease changes, people don't know what to expect. They don't realize that their, their loved one is going to go through not only the, 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 the cognitive changes, but also the physical changes that happen. So there's that part. And, and the exhaustion or just sometimes um, the, the one part that I find the trend, which I find really disturbing, is the number of people who've been diagnosed, whether it's a year or three years or five years, who are still driving. To me, that I'm finding, I, I really try to talk through with the caregiver that you cannot allow your loved one to continue driving. That's the part that really scares me. Now, you said in, in, in Canada, your physician, your mother's physician was able to call and get your mother's license pulled. Uh, yes. But that doesn't necessarily stop her from driving. Well, uh, it would here. Um, it would, you know, um, but not every physician does that automatically. Um, they should, but they don't. Um, I'm saying a lot of people in, drive without a license anyhow. Yeah. I mean, my mom, I mean, I, I actually also took away the keys to make sure, and I sold the car very quickly. Within, within two weeks of the doctor doing the diagnosis, I took away the keys and sold the car. And that's hard. And that, 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 that's probably the hardest part for people to, to deal with is telling their loved one, like taking mm-hmm. away their independence. And it's, it, it is very difficult for people to do that. I have to say that's the number one thing that people are afraid to do. But I look at that. My mom had had two previous car accidents before her diagnosis, and I, I, w- I would always think that if, if, if she continues driving, not only her own life is at risk, but she's putting so many other people at risk. Yeah, and we like to talk to, you know, let somebody else be the bad guy. So if it's the caregiver rather than you as the daughter being the person that takes away the keys, let it be the doctor, let it be somebody like yeah. you who's a consultant to the family taking yeah. away the car keys so that, you know, the family member can be the good guy. I'm here for you, Mom. I'm going to drive you wherever you need to go. I'll make sure that you get to wherever it is you want to be. Yeah, and there are occupational therapists. I'm sure you have many of them, too, who specialize in assessing and driving assessments. In fact, we interviewed two on our previous show a week ago here on Caregiver SOS On Air. 
Right, and that could be a, a terrific way of saying, you know, to your loved one, listen, if the occupational therapist says you can drive, well, then you can drive. But in most cases, the occupational therapist, the assessment is a person is no longer able to drive. But that would be a that they they are an excellent tool for um, family members to help. That's know. a good tip. So, yeah. so you talk about with your um, the work that you're doing that you make um, you help them make a plan. So, yeah. is this something? Is it is it short term? Is it long term? Is it e all of the above? Well, it's according to what the families need. Um, it really is according. I mean, there's so many different. I mean, sometimes you know, I, I I met a woman last week whose husband was diagnosed two years ago, and for two years, they really tried to keep it quiet. They didn't want anybody to know. Um, they, she thought she could manage it herself until it now got to the point where it's become impossible for her to care alone for her husband. So I met with her. I, I, you know, I recommended some really good um, uh, local community resources where she can go and get some spousal support. And I, I recommended an occupational therapist who does driving assessments. I um, would recommend, like she has, she has already somebody at home, uh, like, a, like a housekeeper helping her out. So a place where that person can go and get some training and caring for someone also as a third party caregiver. Uh, but it's it's all different situations. You know, I had a, I had one case where a daughter called to me. Her mother has has um, is ill, and the father has Alzheimer's. But they're absolutely refusing any type of care or support. But the daughter is the caregiver to both her parents. And I try to make an intervention with the family. But at the end of the day, you know, I can offer support and guidance. But if the family isn't ready to 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 make that that to really help themselves, um, I kind of get blocked. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes you have to give caregivers permission to say no. Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes it's, I, I can't I can't do this for you. You know, you can't rely on me. You can't rely on me to be there 24-7 to take care right. of both of you. It's, you know, we, right. we have to give. And, and that's another great thing that um, somebody such as yourself who's coaching caregivers can give them permission to set boundaries um, and to learn to say no so that they don't just wear themselves out. Talk to us about, and, and, go and ahead, what I do really, and I, what I really do too, is I talk to people about, because this caregiving took a really heavy toll on my own health, and it had a ripple effect on my children. I mean, my youngest daughter started suffering from very severe anxiety, seeing the stress it took on me, seeing the ambulance coming at home to get their mother. Um, you know, because at year six, I, you know, I had pushed myself and pushed myself so much that it, it took a toll on my heart. It took a toll on, and I'm I'm 48, so this was this would be going back six years ago. So I was 42, and I, um, you know, it took a toll on my heart. It took a toll on my on my youngest daughter. So that's what caregivers have to realize. You know, it 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 it, it takes a caregiver to get to a crisis situation before they ask for help. But what they don't realize is that the ripple effect that it has on the surrounding family members. I would have never imagined the ripple effect that it took on my own children and on my own health the way it did. Tell us a little more about your children and how it affected them. So my youngest, uh, my youngest daughter is now 11, and then I have a 13-year-old, and my son is now 19. It was very difficult on my son because he was the one who was closest to my mother. She was the one babysitting him. He, like, well, he's the one who knew her the most uh, prior to her being diagnosed. So that caused a lot of sadness in him. Um, and, you know, the, the girls knew her less, but my youngest daughter was the one who was probably the most sensitive. And, you know, I, I was really coming home at the end of the day and, and just being raw and being stressed and being, and I guess all the buildup that was leading up to my nervous breakdown, 
you know, I'd go from zero to a hundred in terms of my 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 moods and my 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 patience. I had no patience, and you know, she she witnessed that. And there were a couple of times where, um, you know, the, an ambulance had to come to the house, and she'd wake up at two o'clock in the morning seeing me carried out. And it was only two years after that. I mean, I, I would say two years. Maybe, maybe it was only two years ago, actually. What I'm saying, two years ago, <laughs> that she recalled uh, when she was five years old how mummy had gone with the ambulance, and she just started remembering and talking about things. But I think at the same time. As a, as a woman, they, they have witnessed their mother come from a crisis situation and been able to rebuild myself. You know, I guess it's shown them that life is not easy. Life is a journey. There are challenges, and we go through, as human beings, we go through tough times, but we are resilient as human beings. I mean, I, I do consider myself a very resilient person right now. I would not have imagined myself this way a few years ago, but, you know, they, they see that life teaches you things, and you just... You become resilient from it. That answers part of what I'd like to hear a little more about. We've got about two minutes left. Tell us, Claire Webster, what you learned about yourself and, and what knowing what you know now you would have done differently. The first thing that I would have done differently is I would have really sought out support services uh, immediately. I would have gone to a local organization and I would have said, help me, um, whether it's Alzheimer's Society or whatever. There's so many different, I guess, organizations, but I would have gone for help immediately. And um, what I've learned about myself is that I'm stronger than I thought I was. I'm stronger than I thought I was. And the last thing I have to say is that I, I, as difficult as this whole past 10 years has been, I think in life everything happens for a reason, and I would have never imagined myself 20 years ago being an Alzheimer care consultant. I worked in sales and communications and fundraising, and I think this happened so that I, I'm here to be able to help others. Like, I'm really here to, be, to help other people. I mean, obviously you're a great communicator, which is a big plus. Uh, you live in Canada, in Montreal. Can you help people across the border? I can help people across the border, absolutely. I can Skype with them. I can do telephone consultations with them. Um, they can, you know, there's all the information to reach me is on my website, carecrosswalk.com. It would be my pleasure. And uh, I'm assuming you're bilingual. You speak French as well? Yes, I do. I could hear a little bit of an accent. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I love Montreal. So uh, Carol, who had to run to a, a important meeting, uh, is also bilingual, speaks French. But uh, here, of course, a number of folks speak Spanish. If people want to get a hold of you, uh, how do you bill for your time? So I bill uh, basically for an hour and a half. Um, I, you know, I could discuss my consulting. I'd rather discuss my consulting fees, you know, by phone, I mean, in person with the person, because, you know, I have a, I have a rate for my hour and a half. Um, but if, you know, I would not never turn away a family who, you know, who wouldn't be able to afford it. I mean, I'm, I've done so much volunteer work in this area. So right. if a family wasn't able to, you know, uh, pay my consulting fees, I would ask them, you know, let me know what can you, what can you afford? So I would well, that's never good to turn hear. away a family. And Claire Webster, before we run flat out of time, uh, for people here, uh, because the numbers of families uh, who will face an Alzheimer diagnosis or, or other forms of dementia is just going to skyrocket over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, your best yeah. advice is get help right away. 
get help right away. Please do not think that you can manage um, this disease on your own. Please get support. Please, and, and learn, learn as much as possible about the disease. Know what to expect. And also, you should have a discussion with your family about who has the mandate of the mandate of power, the power of attorney. It's very important. You will not be able to make any decision on behalf of your loved one if you don't do not have that mandate. Perfect. Got to stop you. Very important. Stop you right there. Caregiver Crosswalk. Carecrosswalk.com. Carecrosswalk.com. Got it. Thank you. We really appreciate your time, Claire Webster. You take care. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye-bye. President and founder of uh, Caregiver Crosswalk, and if you want to get a hold of her, carecrosswalk.com. I'm Ron Aaron, uh, Carol Zerniel, and I come to you next with Take 10, right here on Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and caregivers. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people who care for them. Programs like Caregiver Teleconnection, Caregiver Teleconnection is a free, bilingual, and confidential program connecting caregivers and family members to information and support through the telephone. Each Caregiver Teleconnection telelearning session is hosted by professional facilitators and experts, giving caregivers the opportunity to connect with and share with others in a similar situation. With Caregiver Teleconnection, learning and support is just a phone call away. Find out more at 866-390-6491 or go to caregivertelekinnection.org. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. We end each program with Take 10 featuring Carol Zerniol and Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert on caregiving and addictions. I'm Ron Aaron. And the topic for today is a fascinating one that every single caregiver will identify with, and we dubbed it ignorance is bliss, or is it? Or is it? So I was thinking about, you know, parenting and how we take all of these, you know, when you're going to have a newborn traditionally, well, at least now it's traditional, you get all these classes, they sign you up, there's all the books, people talk to you, people are, are there in the hospital with you when the baby's born, you have all these checkups, it's very intensive. But with the caregiving, a lot of times it creeps up on us. It's it's at home. It's away from other people. You may or may not be seeing a doctor um, about a situation. Um, and so, Jamie, I'm just wondering, you know, there seems to be a couple of different camps. Uh, some people don't know and, and don't really want to know. They're just kind of going to wing it all the way through. And other people, they just want to arm themselves with every piece of information possible. And so, you know, in, in caregiving, is, is is there any difference in that? Is ignorance bliss? Well, I kind of lean towards the latter. Um, obviously not in a compulsive way. We don't need to have one more compulsive thing to do, uh, which is to be the smartest caregiver in the history of mankind. But information is important. I think it's pretty woeful in terms of our country that the two most important social, or should I say, events in our lives, I'll say social, biopsychosocial, I was going to say, are, par- are parenting and caregiving, and neither really have any wealth of information or, or formal training attached to it. So why aren't we having in the healthcare systems, the same way that all of the, you know, the 
you have all of these classes related to you know the maternity ward and getting ready to have your baby why don't we have those classes in the healthcare systems for caregivers you know taking care of all older loved ones why doesn't it get the same weight well you know i think there is actually some uh, notion that there is a like a uh, mother group uh, there is that what to do before a person actually becomes a caregiver how to prepare i think it's when we're in the throes of caregiving or actually the throes of parenting that we usually tend to to wing it and um, and not use the resources around us, and I think that we do have to set our our rudder in the water here, and and to make sure. I think what you're saying is that really most hospitals, and and I should say under fee for service, which means um, not like WellMed, not a Medicare Advantage plan, that, that we have such uncoordinated care that I think the healthcare field has kind of forgotten about training uh, caregivers and how much it would save them in the long haul. But when you look at a company like WellMed that, that really, really supports the, the Caregiver SOS program and all of the wonderful programs you've created there, I think you see another animal there. As you, as you talk about caregiving and training and responsibility and uh, winging it or not winging it, uh, with the Internet today, and more and more people certainly are Internet savvy, uh, the information superhighway, uh, can you find enough on the Internet about caregiving that it'll take you through that process? I believe it can, Ron, and I mean, not enough ever. Um, in fact, I always think live people and points of view, and, and uh, since we all know that something can go wrong and probably will, it's always better to have that support group to gain a consensus and get feedback. But to your point, um, yeah, I think there's a lot on the web that we do need to study. I just believe we need to put it out there as a reality test with other people who have gone through it before. Because one of the things that, uh, Carol, you mentioned last week uh, on Take 10 is the new uh, support group that WellMed is launching, WellMed Charitable Foundation, through the WellMed Teleconnection Program, a telephone-connected support group. Right. This is a, it's a support group. It's an eight-week program, so it's not a huge commitment. It, um, and it's the same group of people will be on the phones for all eight weeks. It's an, an evidence-based program. Uh, and, and that's our uh, attempt to help get information out to caregivers and also to have caregivers help other caregivers. Um, so, you know, we have the, the mommy-daddy playgroups and people exchange, you know, recipes and, and talk about their kids and getting into the best schools and sharing that information. Um, and so we want a way for caregivers to share information, best practices, you know, best places to get treatment for certain conditions. I mean, they're, you know, people getting information from each other. Caregivers are experts in their own right in many cases. That's a lot of what Claire Webster talked about on, on the show just before we brought Dr. Jamie on, on Take 10, talking about uh, caregiving crosswalks and uh, how to connect with support groups. Yeah, and, and it's huge. And, and Jamie, you know, what? I, why don't people, why don't we take the time to get the knowledge, to join the support group, what is it that really prevents us from, you know, expanding our knowledge and trying to be informed in the caregiving space? You know, there's a piece of me that will always say that things of the mind and, and of the heart um, suffer from shame, guilt, and, and coming out into the open. Uh, and, being, and I think nothing more than caregiving, which shows our own vulnerability as a person. We love to think of ourselves as competent and super people and professional and heroes and and all of a sudden we're pretty humbled by this world of caregiving like are humbled by depression and anxiety as well 
um, if that's what you're going through. And I think it's really, really important for us. Uh, and this is why your group, uh, your telephonic group, is so critical, I think, to have a, a rudder, in, if you will, in the water that, that you can actually test out if I'm veering right or veering left or if I'm heading into the world of burnout and, and compassion fatigue. So um, I, I think what you're doing is an answer for it. I do also believe, again, that it's critical for us to seek out support groups if you're a caregiver. Well, you know, I think you said something really important in there about the humility. You know, I, I have a, a son who is just about to finish being a teenager. You know, he's getting, you know, out of high school. And my husband and I were laughing and saying, you know, oh, we should have gotten him different parents somewhere along the line. And then, you know, maybe he would be more self-sufficient. Uh, maybe we, you know, and you, when you look back, you hit milestones and you look back and you think, gee, did I, did I do well enough? Did I do well by him? Did I, you know, you know, you just, you have doubts about yourself and in, in, as a parent. Um, and I think, you know, those of us who are on a caregiving journey, uh, we we have doubts, of it, and it is humbling to be a caregiver, and it is scary sometimes to think that maybe we didn't get the information or we wished we got the information too late. I, I so agree with you, and, and the next question would go, is, are we caring well enough? You know, are we taking care of our loved one well enough? And that's what I hear, uh, you know, that, that, that guilt, if you will, we talked about last week. Uh, uh, do we, are we doing this, you know, right and I believe from the bottom of my heart that uh, these are the issues that, that come around that, that prevent us uh, from getting the help we need, is that vulnerable side. That's why support groups and, and groups like Caregiver SOS and, and obviously soon your telephonic group will, will add you know, some comfort, some measure of safety that people are around people who understand. Well, I guess I think at the end of the day, you know, knowledge is power. Um, making informed decisions, particularly when you're dealing with people's health care and in the caregiving space, you may be called upon to make some tough choices or to help make decisions about treatment. Right, Ron? You're listening to Caregiver SOS Take 10 right here on 930 AM, The Answer. I'll answer your question in a moment. I'm Ron Aaron, and we are delighted to have you with us. These programs are available on podcast as well. We do make tough decisions in caregiving. We make tough decisions in parenting. But one of the things, Jamie, uh, we started out by talking about uh, as you enter and begin caregiving, do you have enough information? Do you know to get it? Uh, I don't know if there's a study on this, but uh, it would seem to me that most people fall into caregiving. It's not something they choose, select, and prepare for. That's true, Ron. And the most difficult thing for us as, as people, again, we just covered probably because of the vulnerability side or because we may not feel that we're even worth it, is to ask for help. You know, there is help out there. You, you alluded to it on the Internet for sure. Um, certainly the Wellmed Charitable Foundation in Texas has fabulous help out there. But to ask for it and, and ask the right questions for it is critical. So um, that's important for us, is to feel the shame and this guilt and these issues to, to go away. By the way, at the end of the day, good caregiving is also good care coordination and good health care because they're the best historians of what their loved one is going through. Carol gets the last word. Well, I, you know, I think that the last thing that you said is they don't know the questions to ask, and I think that's probably is ignorance bliss. I don't think any of us want to be ignorant. I think a lot of us don't know what questions to ask, and that's where getting help from a support group or a geriatric care manager can help us identify those key questions to ask. And if you want to check into the new caregiver support group beginning 
very soon. Just go to caregiversos.org. There's no cost. You can sign up. You can be part of it and maybe end the question of ignorance and bliss. Thank you to Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Take 10, comes to you at the end of each and every one of our programs. We hope you have a great rest of the weekend, everybody. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.